Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to have you at church. And for those of you who are still joining us online, it's really encouraging to have you tuning in as well. We do hope that uh, the service will be encouraging for you. Uh, we're going to be working through uh, this passage that was read out for us from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and it is a challenging passage. It's one of those passages you wonder, well, would anyone really be writing letters of complaint if we just moved on to the next one? But you'll find out next week. Next week's got plenty of its own issues to deal with. So we may as well listen to what God has got to say, uh, particularly because a passage like this one has been used in ways that has probably upset and hurt people significantly in the past. And it might be worth us paying attention to that, recognising it, uh, and making sure that we hear God as He intends to be heard. So how about we begin this morning by praying and asking that He would be at work in us by His Spirit to ensure that that would be the case. Let's pray. Our dearest Father, we thank You that You do speak to us. You don't hide from us Your thoughts. You reveal Yourself to us so that we might know You better and love You more deeply. Father, we do ask that your Spirit would be actively at work in each of us as we listen to you this morning, and that it would be a love of you that we're left with as we head off together this week, uh, not a love or concern for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, on your service sheet, uh, there's an outline, and that probably will be a bit of a help to you uh, as we work our way through. Uh, and at the bottom of it is a QR code. There's two QR codes. I'll explain the other one in a minute. But the one at the bottom is linked to an anonymous Q&A uh, little online form. Uh, and Lauren will be running a Q&answer, question and answer thing with me uh, towards the end of the service. Uh, so we perhaps we'll take a little bit longer this morning. Uh, but the prayer is that we do that in order to be careful. It's not a competition. I wonder if you've ever found yourself making that exclamation to someone else. Or perhaps you've had someone make that exclamation to you. It's not a competition. Now, there are those, aren't there, who think, seem to think that any path to glory involves necessarily overcoming others in competition to get there. Those who think that the pursuit of glory is a zero-sum game. That is, that one person's growing in glory or crowning glory must always ultimately come at an equal and opposite diminishment to another person's honour and glory. I had a friend like that growing up, uh, who every kind of you know, computer game, sporting endeavour, whatever it was that we were doing, it was always a competition. And you had to finish it by making clear that everyone was clear who had achieved the glory and who, as a result, had lost it. Didn't keep on doing a whole lot of things with that friend. But when this is the creed by which we live, when we live as if life is a mad scramble to secure glory and honour for ourselves, everyone ends up being debased and demeaned as a result, don't they? We end up covering ourselves, not in glory, but rather instead in shame. And that certainly seemed true for the Corinthians and their general approach to church life together, particularly with respect to their leaders, those who led the church. Uh, popping up on the screen is a little reminder of one of the themes from early on in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Paul exclaimed there, what after all 
is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Paul here is exasperated by the Corinthians' tendency to make everything into a competition, promoting the glory of one preferred leader while heaping shame upon all other contenders. Don't you realise, Paul says, that Paul, myself, Apollos, Cephas, we possess no honour or glory in and of ourselves. So how about we cut out this competitive boasting about who follows who? Now, over the coming four chapters of Paul's letter, we'll see multiple examples of how this zero-sum attitude toward a competition for honour and glory had the potential to unravel the intimacy and the unity of the Corinthians' church life with one another. We'll see that um, uh, unpack, play out in a whole bunch of different contexts of church life. Uh, Let's have a look to turn at, let's turn to have a look, sorry, at the first Uh, I guess the first little example or the beginning of the unravelling of this area of discussion that Paul leads the Corinthians into. I'll read our opening verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 2 to 3. Paul writes, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. It's interesting to note, at least, that whatever else is going on in this passage that we're looking at together today, Paul does not rebuke the subjects of the passage, but rather he praises them for generally remembering him and remembering the things that he had passed on to them. Uh, That's an unusual moment in the course of a letter like this one that Paul writes to the Corinthians. There's not many praise moments. And in fact, next week, Paul will explicitly say, and the next thing I'm going to tell you about, I've got, got no praise for you whatsoever. But here, there is praise. In today's passage, I think it has more of a tone of Paul giving the Corinthians a heads up, so to speak, about a potential area of misunderstanding, confusion or tension. But what exactly is it that Paul is wanting to draw the Corinthians' attention to. I think many of us are probably in the habit of understanding language of headship in terms of hierarchy and authority. Perhaps we imagine something akin to the hierarchical authority of a headmistress or a headmaster who exercises authority over the staff and the students who are ordered in various ways underneath them or below them. But in fact, I don't think that that is what Paul has in mind here as he speaks about head. Paul isn't sketching out a hierarchy of cascading authority, starting from the one with the most authority and power and then flowing down to the person who's got the least. He's not presenting an orderly chain of command, so to speak. If he was, it'd be rather confusing because he's going backwards and forwards in a way that doesn't flow uh, any kind of particular pattern from top to bottom in the the the, the people that he mentions here. Rather, when Paul speaks about heads here, he's evoking the metaphor that he'll keep coming back to multiple times throughout the next several chapters. That is, the metaphor of an intimate and interdependent relationship existing between a head and its body. 
uh, in the ancient world, uh, uh, maybe an athlete or a victorious military leader might often receive glory and honour by having a crown of, crown of laurel branches placed upon their head. And the crown of laurel branches placed upon the head was a sign of honour and glory that the whole person shared in and participated in. Likewise, actually I guess you could say the reverse, when someone has behaved in a way that perhaps lacks honour or integrity, we might tell them to hang their head in shame. Jesus himself uses the image of burning coals poured on someone's head to communicate the the sensation of shame that engulfs the whole person for their failure to act in the right way. Whatever glory a head is crowned in, the body shares equally in as well. And whatever shame the body itself suffers will reflect poorly upon the head as well. Now, I'm not going to go much more into the headship language of this passage today, but I have put a QR code there on your service outline sheet to a sermon that I did on headship in Ephesians a couple of years ago. Uh, Ephesians is a passage that speaks about headship in much greater detail, and Paul draws in other passages from the Bible to explain this general idea that I've been sharing. But you can follow that up if you'd like to at a later time. But this particular image that we've got here on the screen is true of our relationship to Christ as our head. In fact, earlier on in the letter, Paul has been speaking of the way in which the Corinthians, as Christ's body, have been shaming Christ, who is their head, by the way in which they act. And at the end of the letter, Paul will say, the crowning crowning glory of the bodily resurrection that Jesus enjoys is something that his body, the church, will also get to share in. It's true also of Christ's relationship to God as his head. Christ reflects and embodies the very glory of God the Father, perfectly as if they're one. And it's true also of a wife's relationship to her husband as head. Now, you might notice there that I said a wife's relationship to a husband rather than just a woman's relationship to men in general. Uh, Throughout Paul's letter, it's the same, we came across this in chapter 7 as well, the language that Paul uses to speak about men and women is exactly the same word that is husband and wife. Now, the only way you can tell which Paul is speaking about in any context is to look at the context in which it's being used. And so one of those things I want you to do as we work through, keep an eye out for any signs that might support what I'm suggesting, that the context here is Paul particularly speaking about the relationship between a husband and wife. I think there are good reasons to say that in this context that's exactly what's in Paul's mind, but you're more than welcome to keep an eye out and see if you can spot the ones as I mention them as we work our way through. And it's upon this uh, wife-husband relationship that I think Paul will focus our attention in the following verses. Uh, Let's flick to the next little section, verse 4 and following. Have a look down with me and read along. Chapter 11, verse 4 to 6. And I think we see this glory, shame, uh, honour kind of relationship playing out in these verses. Paul writes, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. 
But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, frustratingly here, Paul doesn't go into detail about why a husband's praying or prophesying with his head covered should bring shame upon either his own head or his his head Christ. But Paul does unpack a little bit for us about why a wife's praying or prophesying in church with her head uncovered might bring shame both upon herself uh, and her husband as her head. For a woman to have had her head shaved was an abusive act of public humiliation, an act designed to both highlight her own failings as a wife and equally to reflect shame upon her husband as well. Uh, This picture, this photo, um, it's a little bit unsettling and disturbing, is of how many women were treated following the German withdrawal from France after the war. Those who were seen or considered to have collaborated with the enemy had their heads shaved as a sign of public shaming and disgrace. Uh, And many women suffered this fate unfairly, partly because many of their husbands were away in war still, not able there to stand up for them or protect them, and they were shamed and dishonoured in a way that reflected back on their husbands as well. When Paul speaks about hair being cut off here, he's not speaking about bobs or buzz cuts. It's, it's a matter of public shaming. He's not speaking about personal hairstyling. And in a comparable way, Paul goes on to say in the next little section, for a wife in Paul's day to have appeared in public without her head covered would likely have signalled a wife's decision to publicly distance herself from her husband in a manner that would have brought public shame upon both of them. Now, it's a little bit difficult for us to grasp the cultural significance of such uh, an action as uncovering or taking the shawl off one's head. We tend to think of a shawl being placed over someone's head as an oppressive symbol rather than as a sign of unity uh, and um, connection. I'm trying to think of the best way that maybe I could paint a similar kind of vibe of a situation in our own context, although it's not one I've ever seen or find it difficult to imagine happening. But hopefully it'll help give you a bit of a flavour of the kind of scenario that Paul is addressing here in his letter. Now, at the end of each sermon series here at Summy Hill Church, for those of you who have been here for a little while, you'll know, we typically, at the end of a sermon series, we'll share a lunch together in the morning or at evening we'll share a dinner together and we'll invite men and women from across the different congregations to share something uh, over the course of that meal, to share with everyone some words of encouragement or a practical insight of application that they've drawn from their time during the teaching of God's Word over that sermon series. And effectively what we're doing there I think is pretty close to what Paul is describing as prophecy in today's passage. And we'll come back in future weeks to do a bit more of a deep dive into what's going on with prophecy later on. But now imagine at one of these lunches or one of these dinners that one of the married women from amongst us got up to share with church, with the church community in this kind of way, or perhaps got up to lead prayer during one of our church services. But before coming up to the microphone, 
she very deliberately and publicly removes her wedding ring and places it conspicuously on her seat before then coming up to either contribute prophecy or prayer. Such a public and deliberate removing of the wedding ring, whatever it signified, whatever it might have happened to have meant, would communicate some kind of disassociation from her husband, wouldn't it? An action that would sure have at least maybe made the husband and probably many of us a little bit uncomfortable, if not communicated a sense of shame and distancing. Back in chapter 7, you might recall that we'd already seen how some wives, having recently become believers, Christian believers in the church, were considering divorcing their pagan husbands as a horrendously misguided way of displaying their religious devotion, thinking that somehow the intimate connection with their husbands who weren't believers was no longer appropriate, having become believers. Perhaps ashamed of their unbelieving husbands, perhaps perhaps imagining that their marriage somehow compromised their own spiritual freedom, status or standing in the Christian community, some wives evidently felt the need to remove their head coverings and distance themselves from their husbands before participating in Christian worship. Perhaps even some husbands were a little resentful of the freedoms that church provided to their wives for participating in public worship, leaving the wives themselves feeling as if they had to choose between either honouring their marriages or glorifying God, as if it was a zero-sum game. Now, I don't want to pretend that I know exactly what the scenario or the situation was happening here in Corinth. I don't, with any degree of certainty, but I think that does paint an accurate kind of picture of the kind of scenario or situation that Paul was addressing. And Paul insists that publicly glorifying God in prayer and prophecy and acknowledging one's husband or one's marriage was not a zero-sum game. They weren't mutually exclusive. Now, Paul doesn't propose any slippery slope arguments here, suggesting that wives should pull back from public prayer and prophesying just in case a husband's sense of honour was getting a little bit ruffled at whatever they might have been doing. In fact, to Paul's mind, any insistence that there was a fundamental conflict between honouring one's marriage and a wife's freedom to pray and prophesy in church would, be, would have been to misunderstand the nature of both marriage and prayer and prophecy. And Paul explains his thinking uh, in our next little section. Have a look with me at verse 7 and following. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. For many in the church, indeed, pretty much from any context, 
It's difficult not to hear in these verses a call for the wife to lay aside her own preferences for the sake of promoting her husband's honour and glory. To see in it the suggestion that the wife is to step into a supporter role so that a husband might take centre stage. Some have even taken this a step further, suggesting that this is saying that all women are expected to seek the honour of men in general, to be, be that in the workplace or in the home or be, be it elsewhere. Friends, this is not, even remotely, what Paul has in mind here. To read the passage this way would be to turn upside down and inside out the Old Testament scriptures that Paul is alluding to in these verses. Take, for example, Psalm 8 that we read earlier today, a passage that Paul, I pretty certainly suspect, had in mind as he was writing these verses. He uses these verses very regularly when speaking about this topic of headship and humanity. These verses from Psalm 8, verse 4. There Paul writes, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. The psalmist here, drawing on Genesis chapter 1, about how God had created man and woman in his image to rule over all the works of his hands, drawing on chapter 1 of Genesis, Psalm 8 describes how God has crowned humanity with his own glory. A glory that is expressed in humanity ruling together over all of creation, over all the things that God's hands had made. But, if all of humanity has been crowned with God's own glory, as Psalm 8 suggests, then why does Paul seem to so clearly differentiate between a husband's glory and the wife's glory? There in verse 7, that little section we just read. Notice speaking there about the husband being the glory of God and the wife the glory of man. I think actually Paul goes on in verses 8 to 9 to explain exactly what he means by that differentiation. In verses 8 to 9 gives us a bit of a clue for what Paul has in mind. Uh, Verses 8 to 9 are describing the creation of Eve in Genesis chapter 2. I'd encourage you to go and have a read of that chapter a little bit later on today. In Genesis chapter 2, partway through, we find that Adam had already been formed out of the dust of the earth and he'd been crowned with the authority, that is the glory in Psalm 8's language, to rule over the garden and the animals and to care for them. But I wonder if you remember, what was God's assessment of Adam there in the garden, glory on his head to rule over the garden and the animals? What was God's assessment? It is not good for man to be alone. Everything else had been good, but man there, with his glory ruling over the animals, God says, was not good. Independently, Adam had been unable to reflect God's glory 
in his ruling over and caring for creation by himself. And so, therefore, God puts Adam into a deep sleep, you might recall, and he forms Eve from out of Adam's side and for Adam, so that together as one flesh, they might jointly embody God's image, God's glory and rule over creation. Note here that this mention of Adam's, uh, the, the woman being for Adam, is not a reference to her being a helper for Adam's projects, right? Like, Adam doesn't at this point have his own pet hobbies, he doesn't have his own dreams and schemes for what he's going to do with the garden, he's carrying out God's work. He is reflecting or attempting to, failing to, reflect God's authority to rule over and care for creation. Eve is for Adam only in the sense that together they might do God's work that he has called both of them to, not in order to satisfy Adam's needs for an extra hand in his own pursuits. Paul's point in verse 7 is not that Eve has no share in the glory that Psalm 8 describes, but simply that this glory didn't come to her independently of Adam. Eve now equally shares in the glory that God had first crowned Adam with. Uh, In wearing a head covering, as this passage had been speaking about so far, Paul is suggesting that a wife is testifying to the angels that ultimately it's God's glory, not her own, nor her husband's, that she is seeking to promote through either her marriage or through her praying and prophesying in public worship. By wearing the head covering, it was a symbol that she was honouring both marriage and, well, she was honouring God, sorry, in her marriage and in her praying and prophesying. Now, today's passage is one that may yet pose a whole stack of unanswered questions for you. I guess that's why we have a question time, uh, but even then, I doubt we're going to be able to knock off all of the questions that you might have brought with you to a passage like this one. Why is a man covering his head in worship dishonourable? What exactly does the practice of prophecy look like? What can and can't nature teach us from the last paragraph of today's passage? Why is it that unmarried believers don't seem to be explicitly addressed in this passage? They are all really worthwhile questions, but I'm not going to ask us to hang out here today while I try and give my best shot to all of them, at least not in the sermon. But rather, it's the angels of verse 10 that I think it would be most helpful to conclude our time with some further consideration. I think that in the angels, I mentioned the angels, who come up several times throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, we find a little hint at a key warning that we should heed from today's passage. Because as I mentioned earlier, none of us ever have worn headscarves in order to even take them off in the first place. What might we be cautious about or warned by from a passage such as this one? I think if we've come away from today's passage fixating contentiously upon questions of how to safeguard a husband's honour within marriage or how we might better promote a woman's glory in the church, then I fear on both accounts we've gone horribly astray. 
For as Genesis 2 and Psalm 8 remind us, marriage is no more ordered toward promoting the husband's glory and honour than a woman's authority to pray and prophesy is ordered towards promoting her own glory and honour. Both marriage and prayer and prophecy are equally to be ordered towards honouring and glorifying God, from whom every species of glory comes, as Paul notes in verse, in verse 12 there. Uh, throughout the Scriptures, angels are regularly described as those beings who are entrusted with the task of jealously guarding God's glory and honour. And there's a very real risk, I think, that any man tempted to turn marriage into an institution focused upon serving his own honour and glory, or for any woman tempted to reframe her freedom to pray and prophesy as an opportunity to promote her glory and honour, may find themselves provoking the judgment of angels. In fact, a different kind of bad behaviour actually did provoke judgment that came upon the Corinthians that we'll have a look at in next week's passage. Paul's fear here became a reality in the next issue that we'll get to next week. In Acts chapter 11, it describes this horrific incident in which an angel struck down King Herod, who was eaten by worms from the inside out before dying. And why? because he sought after his own honour and glory rather than using what he had to glorify God. I confess over the course of my own lifetime, at least in my own tribe's circles, far more ink has been penned on today's passage in service of safeguarding a husband's honour and glory within marriage than that of either women or even God himself. It's sobering to pause and ponder for a moment what the angels might have to say about that. How about we close this time? Uh, please do feel free to th uh, send through any questions that you might have via that QR code. But as we move on from what's a tricky passage and one that we'll no doubt have to spend more time together unravelling and working through, that let's pray that it would be God's honour, a concern for His honour and glory that we would leave today with, rather than perhaps others. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we do thank You that You are a gracious and glorious God. Father, we're humbled by the reality that, as Psalm 8 describes, you have crowned creatures like us with your honour and glory. And yet, Father, we recognise that so often we take that crowning with glory and amp it up for ourselves, often at cost to others, as if it were a zero-sum game, as if glory was something we could accrue for ourselves and in which we need to trade on others in order to to secure it for ourselves. Father, we confess that that's often been the case. We ask that by your Spirit you would turn our hearts away from that hungering to secure glory on our own terms. 
And instead, Father, that in every circumstance, in every situation, whether it be in our relationships, in marriage, in public worship, it would be your honour and glory that we seek to recognise and reflect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.